You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver, Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kastorblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for long-term investors or listeners, I was actually meant to say, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your trend-following journey. And for those who are newer to the show, our hope is that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog of all the episodes you may have missed. Rob Moritz, great to be back with you this week. How are things? How are you doing? Uh, well, it's good to be back after a, a few weeks break. Um, I was quite listening to last week's episode with Nick Leeson, who uh, you know is pretty famous. Uh, I mean, even my kids have heard of him, so uh, that that was pretty exciting. So I, I hope I can uh, match that this week. Hey, Niels. Hey, Rob. Hey. How are you? Doing fine. Great to have you on. Yeah, no, and absolutely, Rob. Um, uh, Nick was a great guest. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, and it was different. So I hope if uh, if you haven't listened to it yet, just go back one week and and listen to our conversation with Nick Leeson. In terms of a market wrap uh, this week, I picked up a few quotes from our friend George that I wanted to share with you. Uh, the first one is from David Tepper. Uh, where he is out saying the market is pretty high and the Fed put a lot of money in here. The market is by anybody's standard pretty full. Maybe the second most overvalued stock market I've ever seen. Obviously, David Tepper, famous in the hedge fund world. And the other one is from an equally famous hedge fund manager, is from Stan Drockenmiller, who was out saying, the consensus out there seems to be, don't worry, the Fed has your back. There's only one problem with that. Our analysis says that it's not true. I'm not a scientist. I'm a common sense guy. I just don't think you can take massive amounts of money, allocate capital to some big companies. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So that was uh, Stan Drugmiller. And of course, we know that when these people are proved right, of course, all the experts will say, oh, but no one could predict all of this. In other news, as they say, yesterday we heard from the Fed, they were out saying that the coronavirus pandemic pandemic has created a fragile U.S. financial system that could last some time. And earlier this week, actually, Fed Chairman Jim, Jerome Powell uh, had already warned that, and I'm quoting, a lengthy downturn could turn liquidity problems into solvency issues. Something actually that I personally think will happen. And by the way, solvency issues can't be fixed with lower interest rates because the companies, um, they will need uh, revenues at that time. But despite these gloomy comments from the Fed, investors struggle, I guess, to seem to make up their mind. You know, one day this week, we had the Dow down by 500 points, and the next couple of days, it's all recovered. Um, but, you know, for those who are looking uh, beyond the, uh, a few days, um, Bank of America they released its view on the world um, and what it will look like after the COVID-19 upheaval. And they were out saying, we expect the pandemic to accelerate many macro trends that would have taken five or more years to play out before, from peak globalization to renewed tech wars and uh, reappraisal of healthcare systems and government influence. And that's what they are out saying. And of course, you could also read it as, 
we all face less privacy and health may be the next wealth. And I do agree that this will accelerate many macro trends, which should be good for those of us who are operating strategies that are broad-based in terms of markets and agnostic to whether markets go up and down. And indeed, they did this week, Moritz, as usual. We're always interested to hear what was up, what was down in your world this week. Um, many things were up, actually. I was uh, putting it on our Slack group. Um, I made 77 basis points positive this past week. It's 2.79% uh, up here to date. And um, some of the you know good positions this week were short positions in hogs and copper and net gas and life cattle. Um, and bad was a short position in cotton and really, really bad was a short position in milk and a short position in silver. Um, so silver short, gold long. I think I've mentioned that before. That is still the positioning of my system. It may change, but it is what it is right now. And what I found remarkable when I had a look at the portfolio is that 78% um, of all the positions that I had on made money in the past week, which is an unusually high number for my system. You know, it's normally a bit more uh, equally distributed. And still the PL is only 77 basis points, right? Even though such a large percentage of my positions made uh, made money, which shows that the, the really the two bad losing positions that I had, milk and silver, they were really large losses. And uh, of course, you know, I got stopped out on, on milk with a 0.8R loss and uh, on we go. That's the next 1,000 trades. Also, the portfolio has changed a bit. You know, when I looked at the um, the best performing markets year to date, there are now still well WTI. WTI, the short position of WTI has been there for a while. And then um, long positions in the US 10 year rates and Canadian bank bills. And the three worst performing markets are now silver and also platinum in addition to milk. And platinum is a complete 180. You know, platinum was a superstar performer um in the fourth quarter of last year and uh, for pretty much the start of this year and um probably the best performing market in my portfolio it's now among the worst this is the nature of the beast oh yeah absolutely and it's you know but tell me a little bit more i'm, I'm just curious i mean you say you um, trade milk i mean how much mm -hmm. liquidity is, is there in milk yeah, days. there there is a bit of liquidity. I mean, we've we've had a question, I think, a couple of weeks back on butter and you know some of those markets. Uh, those I don't trade, but uh, milk is a contract that I can trade with my size. It's probably not a contract that you would trade with an institutional portfolio that has billions, uh, because there's just not enough liquidity for that type of um, of money. Uh, but you know, for my PA type of trading, uh, systematic trend following. Those markets, orange juice, lumber, milk, you know, um, they're all fine. Mm. Cool. Very cool. Rob, as you said, it's been a few weeks. It's uh, great to have you as always. And uh, always very exciting to hear what's happening in your portfolio because, of course, it looks a little bit different than ours. So uh, tell, us, uh, tell us about what's been going on. I mean, actually, it's almost a repeat of what Moritz said. So... Um, over the last week, I'm, I'm up about um, 3%, um, about 12% for the year. Um, actually, since I last spoke to you guys, um, the, the profit's much smaller. So I kind of lost a bit of money, and the last week actually has been pretty good. Um, and similar story, really, actually. I mean, I haven't got many positions on, and we, we talked last time about partly some of the reasons for that, partly being I've got much less capital. Um, but actually, yeah, I've got 
sort of half my positions um, made reasonable money, and there's no real nothing really standing out there. I mean, some of the similar names that Moritz has mentioned, so natural gas, lean mm. hogs, heating oil, all, all reasonable positives for me. Um, what's also quite interesting is um, because um, I haven't got many positions on, I've actually got quite a lot of spare margin in my account, and actually that is contributing to the P&L in a couple of ways. Um, the first way is that my account's denominated in GBP, um, and I'm holding margin, obviously, in various other currencies, mainly dollars and euros, to cover um, f potential futures exposure. Um, and because the pound did very badly over the last week, um, because maybe we're not doing such a good job with this coronavirus, um, you know, that, that actually made me about a third of my profits over the last week. Um, and also, um, as most people do, rather than just keeping um, the cash as cash, uh, a lot of it's actually invested in, in short-term, um, in my case, short-term US Treasury bonds. Um, and uh, that actually made a bit of money as well because, you know, interest rates in the US uh, have, have continued to, to fall in the sort of two to three year point. So, so actually, um, it's not really a story of, you know, th making 3% in futures. It's more a story of making about the same kind of money as Moritz made. But actually, the, the cash pile in the portfolio is so large, that's actually swinging the P&L as well. I mean, that's pretty interesting, but you said 12% year to date. I mean, that's phen phenomenal, really. Um, where, where, if I don't know if you have those numbers in front of you, but whereabouts kind of year to date have, have you done well? And, and because because part of your portfolio is a long only, right? It's a long only portfolio. And, and uh, so it hasn't been easy all all year. No, that's that I'm just focusing on my futures trading, actually. Ah, I, don't, okay. I don't even, I try oh, not to look okay. at my long only, partly because it's depressing. <laughs> Uh, partly because, <laughs> but twelve percent futures wise, that's fantastic as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean actually, you know. I I made twelve percent in January pretty much, um, okay. and I've been flat ever since. Um, I I you know kind of started to make quite a lot of money when the market sold off in March, gave it all back, and and you know it's kind of just been reasonably flat ever since. So, um, you know, it's it's a classic kind of trend following account curve you know you make a lot of money very quickly and then you you're just trying to hang on to it until the the clear trends appear and right now just looking across my portfolio you know there's not really any sign of, of any any clear trends there just smallish positions in not many markets mm. what yeah. volatility are you um targeting if you're targeting volatility with your futures portfolio Rob? that's the other thing i'm targeting 25 percent, which is probably higher than most institutions target so you'd, you'd expect the absolute numbers to be higher in my portfolio anyway um on, right. on a risk adjusted basis it's probably pretty similar but still i would say you've done really well so far this year because even those that uh you know uh, are at that level of volatility. Um, certainly, there are a few people who are up that uh, so far this year. So, so great stuff to hear. I mean, of course, um, not surprising. Uh, a lot of what's already been said in terms of this week, uh, very similar on our side. Um, you know, we did see an uptick in performance this week. Nothing crazy, um, but it was nice. Uh, May is back in the black, which is great. Um, and if we look at the details, um, you know, frankly, crude also was the biggest uh, loser on our side, uh, you know, as it recovers from these historic lows and another show off this week with a 20% gain. Um, but actually, and, and energy was, as a sector, um, the worst uh, area for us. But again, even within energies, net gas did really well. So we talk about energy as like it's the same thing but it's really not uh so um so yeah so that was interesting um all the other sectors pretty much uh, made a little bit of money uh currencies maybe in particular all the markets individually made money that in in that sector 
mostly from the strengthening of uh, of the greenback. So um, risk as well, moderate. Uh, we're running a little bit below our long-term average in terms of uh, value at risk. So, yeah, I mean, ticking along, uh, nothing too crazy, nothing too exciting. Um, but uh, given the fact that we get uh, or investors get a lot of volatility elsewhere in their portfolio, I'm sure they don't complain if they look at our side uh, of the allocation and um, don't feel they have to spend too much time in terms of worrying uh, about that. So that's good news. Now, of course, as as there is a lot of things going on at the moment, we always try and find some topics and, and Rob found some quite interesting topics, uh, mainly from what other people have posted uh, recently, um, but it's obviously along the lines of the things we, we usually talk about, but perhaps in a slightly different way. And um, and so I'd love for you, maybe Rob or, or Moritz, whoever uh, want to, uh, uh, you know, uh, start out. But but the article we're talking about is straddles and trend following, um, a piece that um, Nathan Faber uh, wrote. Um, but it's from the um, Think Newfound um, organization, Corey, um, who's been on the show. So. Um, Rob, you, it caught your attention. Um, do you want to kick it off um, and, and talk about kind of the way you see it? And, and I'm, I'm sure we'll have some other other views, other thoughts about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of related to a topic we, we touched on last time, which is this idea that a lot of people buy CTAs because they perceive them as a kind of disaster insurance. Um, but also there are kind of funds which are explicitly disaster insurance funds or tail risk funds. Um, and the main difference between these, these two approaches is obviously with CTAs, um, we're trend following, we're trend following with futures. Um, and we, we, we're sort of behaving in a way that's a little bit like someone who's hedging an option in the sense that when the price starts to go up, we will buy the price continues to go up, we will buy more. Um, and so we're effectively increasing what a, an options market maker would call our, our delta um, as, the, as the price is increasing. Um, now, you can do a similar thing with options, which of course is if, if you think the market's going to go up, just buy a call option. If you think the market's going to go down, just, just sell um, a, a put option. Um, and the advantage. I would of rather buy it if you think the market's <laughs> going to go down. Yeah, sorry, good point. <laughs> Hard to believe. I I used to be a, a, an options market maker a long time ago. I've I've obviously forgotten <laughs> the basics. <laughs> um, and um, the 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 advantage of doing it that way is obviously when a trend turns, we, we as futures traders we have to get out of our positions quickly and, and sell quickly and and try not to take too big a loss. Um, but obviously, if if you've constructed the same kind of position with options. Um, you, you, that the, the option delta automatically reduces as the market sells off, and and you're you're kind of limited to losing only your, your option premium um, when you um, you know if the, if the trade goes horribly against you. Um, so you can kind of think of that as similar to having a stop loss, you know, which is something that Moritz, of course, is is quite fond of. Um, so the option premium is kind of like a stop loss; it's the most you expect to lose, but unlike a stop loss. It's guaranteed. You definitely, if you're only buying options, you definitely can't lose more than than uh, than your stop loss. Um, so the the question comes, kind of, well, why not do this? You know, why why bother? <laughs> you know, trading futures when you've you've got this this choice of options. Um, now the the difference, of course, is that um, people who buy options, generally speaking, are paying a premium. They're paying a premium because they're paying somebody else to take the risk for them. 
and that's why selling options consistently selling straddles for example is um, a strategy that that you know you expect in the long run to make a, a positive sharp ratio um, and uh, you know if, if you have the data a very good thing to do is just plot the price of the the VIX the back adjusted futures price um, which will include um, the, any money you make or lose from rolling the future and it's pretty much a straight line going down um, with of course spikes upwards whenever things go badly wrong and the, and the VIX spikes up um, so you know you you're, you you basically when you're buying options you're essentially transferring risk um, and that should have a cost to you so in, in the long run um, you would expect that trend following through buying and selling options would um, be um, not as good um, as doing it through futures because of this this option premium so the nice thing about this article um, that I really enjoyed was this you know as someone who likes to see evidence um, you know what I described as kind of an intuitive argument that you'd expect to, to work but these guys actually um, examined uh, the evidence and, and looked at this um, and um, basically sort of compared these these two approaches um, and um, obviously this is a pretty um, topical subject because we exactly as we've been when we're discussing performance in March um, you know if you were to try and jump on those trends in March that then reversed quite quickly in mid-March uh, obviously if you'd done that using options um, that would have been um, you know you'd, you'd have had your losses limited whereas if, as a futures trader you know you're whipsawed you had to get out of your position and so on and so forth um, so um, what these guys did was look at various kinds of what they call straddle strategies so effectively um, doing this this trend following using options versus um, the kind of classic trend following um, using the futures um, and, and basically as you'd expect over time the the the, uh, the option strategies lost lost gradually lost out to the classic trend following strategy um, and um, in the, uh, but in the last kind of couple of months um, in in March in particular um, the options kind of had a benefit you know because you know and, and this was I think the nice thing about this article is after any big market move where a particular strategy is done badly it's very easy to um, especially if you have pushback from clients to kind of sort of try and f what I call fit your strategy to the most recent disaster um, you know or as mil a military strategist might put it fighting the last battle um, so it's very easy to, to look back at March and say wow you know this is crazy what we ought to be doing is is doing our trend following using options rather than futures um, because you know we'll, then we'll be protected against these savage reversals um, but there's this nice evidence showing you that over the long run that's still a bad idea um, because you are consistently um, you know paying up for the you know the option risk premium um, that that um, you know as trend followers we, we kind of don't have to worry about yeah what what are you thinking uh, Moritz yeah um, I think it's a good article um, obviously the um, the link has been created many times before between um, you know option like payoff pro payout profiles or strata like payout profiles and uh, trend following returns and like um, Rob says there are some similarities for instance when you think about you know the delta hedging or the replication or the replication of a call option essentially right um, buying more delta uh, as markets rise all of that is true um, now what we have to remember is that we as trend followers we realize the PL every day and when we hit our stop loss as I do then the trade is over right and you've realized the loss whereas with an option say if you've purchased a call option yes you've paid that premium up front you know paying implied volatility maybe too much 
right? That's why the implied uh, vol premium is uh, is existing. Um, but you will always have the benefit of owning that option, right? So the option may come back, even if the market, you know, say, you know, drops 20%, then the delta of that call option is zero. Um, it is still an option, right? It may be worth zero now, but it may again be worth something in three months time. And, uh, you know, you've paid for it, you own that right. Whereas this is the difference really to trend following, we would have to go back into the trade and start realizing P&L again and pay for it, pay for the benefit, if you will. Um, so the, you know, those analogies, um, you know, you always have to remember that, you know, with with options, there are so many dimensions. It's strike, it's maturity, you know, and I guess you you, know, you can you can fit many things in order to uh, match nicely up with uh, with trend following returns. But it's it's not that simple. It's 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 two very different concepts. And you know, one of the um, one of the points which I think is important, and and Rob kind of like uh, alluded to that already, is is the fact that you know when things really happen. In that instant, in that moment, when the market turns, right, that straddle position, I mean, the straddle position, um, which is, you know, at the money call and at the money put at the same time, that has the maximum vega uh, that you can get from any option position, right? So if stuff moves and if volatilities rise, that position is there right away and it protects your portfolio. You've paid for that, but it's very, very protective at that moment. We, with our trend following portfolios, we are very likely to look the other way at that time because we're not yet positioned for the turn, right? So we're probably making a loss. And, you know, as when I look at my returns, most of the time this is true. When something really bad happens in the equity markets, you know, I tend to be positioned long because that, you know, drop comes in a bull market, it drops off a cliff. The straddle will immediately make money and I will lose on that day. So on that day, it's very different. And this is also one of the reasons why the scatter plots that you see, um, you know, see that scatter plot that shows the S&P return on the x-axis, you know, plus and minus, and on the y-axis you have your trend-following returns plus and minus, right? And then they kind of like fit a regression line, like a polynomial regression line, and it shows that smile. Well, in, in my observations, that smile is there, if you look at periods, if you look at monthly or longer periods of return, then you can start seeing that smile. Because, you know, eventually the trend will establish and we will get on the right side of the trend. If you do that with daily returns, I've never really seen the smile. Exactly because of the reason what I've just said is when the things start moving, we're actually doing the other thing, right? So it is, it is those, when people talk about the similarities and I'm, I'm i'm glad that nathan said it's very coarsely or only roughly similar it's not an identical thing right and the similarities yeah to a certain extent they're there but to many other extents also they're not and like i say you have to go out you know a lot of those blots are then fitted to show the smile and they're deliberately created in such way that they're only looking at monthly or longer returns to show the smile because in, in uh, higher granularity it doesn't exist yeah, I want to stay a little bit with that smile, uh, so to speak, um, because I want people to try and visualize this a little bit more uh, in depth, because it's actually one of the key um, points. Maybe you could say it's a little bit more of the theoretical argument for um, what investors are looking for in on one hand, but also why trend following, but also other things I'd like to come uh, talk about. 
may actually be um, really good. So again, as as Moritz uh, described, the smile comes from the fact that uh, these strategies or any strategy that can deliver really strong returns uh, when a lot of things happen in the underlying, say, the equity markets in this case, when they have big moves, either to the upside or to the downside. But when nothing happens much, that's kind of the bottom of the, of the smile, which we then you know, relate to the shape of a V, essentially, which is the same. And the bottom of that V, if you did it as a straddle, would be below zero, meaning it would cost you money. If nothing happens, that strategy would cost you money. So what you're trying to do in some ways is to say, how can I construct a strategy that has the same profile, so the V profile, but where the bottom, I don't even know what the Greek or technical term for this, but where they, the two lines meet in the middle is not below zero. Is it possible to have a strategy that doesn't cost you money but still delivers in these two extremes? That's the perfect strategy. It's kind of saying you want something that is negatively correlated when markets go down, but it's positively correlated when markets go up. That's essentially what you're trying to do. You don't want something that is negatively correlated all the time or positively correlated all the time. And of course, in our world, it comes uh, out as we say, well, we are non-correlated. But if you were looking at just down months and up months, you would see that more sort of um, picture of negative correlation when, when equities are really struggling and, and positive correlation, ideally. Um, and so it's kind of a conditional correlation. So so certainly we know that, as, as Moritz again pointed out, on monthly data and people who have got long track records, we can demonstrate that that's pretty much what our returns look like. And this is why it's so attractive, really, um, because people shouldn't lose money with a trend-following strategy if you're invested long enough, but you should still have the ability to do well, either in strong bull markets or in strong bear markets, so to speak. Um, but there's also other ways you can do that. And of course, we, we've talked about some other tail risk strategies from time to time. And of course, in the last few weeks, it's become very topical to talk about. And, um, but what I find often, it's kind of a choice, right? It's kind of a choice of either the long vol strategy or the short vol strategy. Now, on our side, actually, internally, funnily enough, I was talking to my colleagues about this yesterday. We have actually developed, and I talk about this a little bit sometimes, that in our strategy, we have a small allocation to vol or to the VIX. And people can buy it separately as well. But that is exactly designed to deliver that smile, but without that cost as well. So a different way of trading volatility, but where you also get that nice payout and certainly this uh, year has been a good test of that theory and it's come out with uh, you know flying colors which is great but i think that's really what the appeal is and i think it's uh, then up to us as managers to you know come with the the the, the bring the narrative um, so that people understand that this is possible not every strategy has that possibility and we know of course for a fact that if you're a long vol, if you invest in a long vol strategy, you can have years with negative performance until the payout. I can't remember if it's if in it's if it's in this paper where they say that you have to go like 14 years and then in the 15th years when you just had that big uh, blowout we had a couple of weeks ago, then it kind of catches up, right? But nobody can sit there and look at a strategy losing money for 10, 15 years before they get the payout. I don't think so. 
And then on the other hand, we know that you have these short vol strategies that work beautifully for a period of time until, of course, they blew up um, when we had the big spike. And we know that that happens from time to time. So I think if you can construct either pure vol strategies that looks like the CTA smile, as it's often referred to, or if you have these trend-following strategies that also deliver that profile, it's really appealing, I think, for, for investors to incorporate that in, in their portfolio. So that those are some of the things that that I take away when I, when I see uh, something like uh, this. Uh, yeah, your memory is very good, Maritz. It's in the paper they say fifteen years. I mean, there's a great right. there's a great quote from that paper, which um, is is this: as we like to say, risk cannot be destroyed, only transformed. And I think that's something we should we should always remember that that it's it's unlikely there really is this holy grail strategy, as you say. So, any time you um, sort of transform your risk by by doing something like, for example, you know, taking the S and P and trend following it. Um, or you know, or, or um, trading options on it instead. Um, ultimately, you're just changing your, you know, you're always exchanging risk for a different kind of risk, or exchanging risk for a turn. You know, that there really are these, these, these sort of no free lunch. Um, so, um, you know, generally speaking, if you think there is a free lunch, then then probably there's something wrong. You know, you've probably found the next Bernie Madoff, perhaps. Um, so, I just, it's important, definitely, that investors understand you know, what the, the strengths and weaknesses are of, of different kinds of strategies and have realistic expectations of, of, you know, when they do well and when they do badly. And and ultimately, you know, the best thing generally is to be diversified um, and to have all, all of these things, you know, in, in your portfolio, um, a bit of long vol, a bit of short vol, a bit of CTA stuff, maybe a little bit of, of tail protection, um, if, if, you know, if, uh, if it's not too expensive. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing the authors point out is that, a lot depends on what your own risk preference is. Um, so, you know, for me personally, um, I'm happier to pay less of that kind of underneath the V cost um, by trend following um, and give up some of the certainty of the fact that when the market reverses, um, you know, during my holding period, which is kind of what Moritz was talking about, um, I know I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to end up paying to get out of the position. Um, whereas with options, I get that for free. That's a, a pay, you know, that's a payoff I'm personally happy with. Um, but one of the nice things about this paper is it really makes that choice stark and 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 says to investors, okay, this is what's on the menu today. You know, neither of these these dishes is perfect for you. Um, uh, depends on on your preference. But now at least you've got a good understanding of what the you know the likely payoff profiles of these kinds of strategies are. I think that's one other thing that's really important in this, uh, which a CTA smile doesn't actually show uh, in a sense. And this is where it becomes a little bit tricky because we can look at it and say, oh, yeah, if the markets move a lot to the downside or to the upside, um, you know, a trend following strategy or another kind of strategy will do well. But there's another twist to it. And and, uh, Moritz was alluding to that a, a, a bit before, and that is speed speed doesn't come into this and actually what i find really fascinating and interesting and certainly some of the things that i i'm excited about on our side in terms of our research is that that our vol strategy actually has the ability to react instantly right i mean it's there to react to to these spikes in vol which we know already that that is impossible for us to do in our trend following uh, part and this is why I think, and, and so if you look at it from an investor's point of view, 
we've always talked about that you should probably have a bit of short-term trend following and a bit of longer-term trend following because the short-term guys will do well initially. So that's going to help you out there. But the longer-term guys we know from the data will do better if the crisis persists, right? So so maybe instead of, of saying, okay, it's short-term tr- trend following versus long-term trend following, I mean, you could also, as, as certainly as we're trying to say, okay, you have a vault strategy that can react really quickly and will pick up that uncertainty as it happens. Combine that with trend following that will ride out the storm as it just keeps growing and you have this major crisis. And then combined with those, you know, combining those two things, you actually have a pretty good shot at, um, you know, helping your equity uh, portfolio. But maybe we're going to be talking about bonds just as much in a few years where that's where the risk is. Who knows? Um, but I think those, some of those some of those strategies are, are are really the future. I think in the way investors get the ultimate protection of their portfolio again with an expected return. It's not we're not expecting them to pay for this at the end of the day. We're still expecting them to make money from this, but with all the other benefits. Um, maybe one final word about this is. Um Right now, I think, you know, probably VIX is around 30, somewhere around that. You know, we've had it much, much higher about uh, five weeks ago, as people know, I guess, as our listeners know. And, you know, it's very expensive in historical comparison to put on a long straddle position right now because you're paying for that volatility. So my trend following strategy isn't impacted by that. It doesn't cost me more to put my trend following strategy to work and trade um, if volatility is 30 or 10, you know, because my stops and my position sizing and all of that takes volatility into account. So I've I've said it before, I, you know, I I guess there's people out there who are, and and I have similar background uh, as Rob in this, you know, you can... I guess be a systematic market maker in in options and and vol and all of that and make money that way. I still have to find the systematic vol trader uh, that is consistently profitable. I, I I haven't found that. I've never seen a track record like that. All of those vol traders um, seem to be discretionary. All of the successful successful ones, right? Um, because there is an element of, okay, you need to see where the flow is. You need to, you know, uh, tap into the banks, you know, recycle some of the risk. You know, it's so multidimensional across different maturities and different strike prices that, uh, and all the asset classes and how they link to each other, that it's, um, I think, virtually impossible to systematically make money in that way. And all of these successful vol funds are, in a way, discretionary, I think. Um, so just, just to say, actually, that AHL, for you know, I used to work, have uh, been trading vols systematically for about 13 years. So, um, yeah, and can but, I, yeah, but and, what I mean, and, of course, you can, you can systematically short vol. I'm sure that is yeah, easily it's not, done. It's not the just shorting. Whether, it does okay. have a short bias. Like all, all mm-hmm. vol funds will have a short bias if they've got a positive expected return. Um, but, um, yeah, there is stuff you can do. I, I kind of agree. I mean, it's very difficult, like getting the data and the surfaces and, and interpolation. And, you know, there's a hell of a lot more work to do before you even think about. You know, calculating a signal, um, and uh, I'm inclined to agree with you that I think that the best vol, um, vol traders are still uh, discretionary um, yeah. because of. But um, there is stuff you can do in that space. Um, uh, but yeah, it will generally speaking be short bias because of obviously that's where the expected return is. 
I couldn't right. agree more with you. And I think it's so exciting because I know you know your stuff more. It's when you say that. And so the most exciting thing about that is that we've actually done it. So our vault strategy, because we don't want to do anything discretionary on our side, our vault strategy is 100% systematic. And, and, yeah, and sure, you are completely you know, right I'm, that it is difficult to do. I'm not sure uh, how long you your know. track record on vol is and what type of instruments you're trading, whether it's just the VIX. You know, this is one volatility instruments out of so many out there. You know, I'm talking more about yeah, diversified volatility trading across asset classes, you know, across instruments. Doing that systematically is incredibly data intensive and it's incredibly difficult to do because of the amount of the data, because of the multidimensionality of the data and because of the data being crappy to begin with. You know, the, the stuff that you see on an options order book is not necessarily the stuff that you can trade. You know, a lot of that volume is traded OTC. So, you know, we don't see it in the same way that we don't see futures markets. So systematic vol trading to do this properly across all of that is incredibly difficult. Of course, you can look at the VIX future and come up with a system to trade that systematically. And like Rob said, I guess most of them are short biased because how else would you have a profit? positive expectancy. I mean, you have to come up with a heck of a system to trade that from the long side, right? And so my point is, you know, when, when you know, right now with wallet 30, yes, you can, I, I have no forecasting ability, right? Maybe we've entered a new regime with volatility, and it's going to stay elevated and go higher for the next one or two years. I have absolutely zero idea. Maybe we're down to 20 in two weeks time could be just as likely, right? But when the stuff traded at like nine vol, or I'm not sure what the all-time low of the VIX was, but somewhere around there, right? It's kind of like, yeah, if you can if you can pick some of that vol up and you know buy convexity, that's probably a good idea to do. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree with you that obviously, if you want to be systematic, you have to. You can only trade the markets that are are, are liquid and, and and all of that, and that is the the equity side and the the, the VIX and the S and P options, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'm not claiming we we've done it across all asset classes for sure. Absolutely agree. Um, but um, and and of of course, you know, with all strategies, right? Of course, I mean, with all strategies, there's going to be periods where you don't make money. So of course, there's going to be vol environments where we're not making money for sure. The question is, like we like with trend following, there's no difference. It, you know, we know that people like these strategies that looks like they're making money all the time, but they're doing it because, as you rightly say, they have a short bias, and so they're going to be making money for a long period of time, a little bit, and they're going to be completely run out of the, run over um, when when vol spikes. So, but anyways, interesting discussion, and I'm sure there's going to be more of this as markets uh, continues to. Um, to become difficult, uh, and I suspect it's not just going to be equities um, that will be the difficult markets in a, in a few years' time, um, maybe sooner. You had more uh, articles that you had picked up, uh, Rob. Um, one, of course, which. Um, I guess also it's one of those legacy stories from from what happened with COVID nineteen. You know when oil went went negative, but also what that meant for um, people who are in that business, service providers, brokers in particular. We know that there's been some big big losses reported, um, and so uh, why don't you talk a little bit about um, 
the next uh, piece that you found? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole oil going negative is really fascinating from a number of different aspects, actually. So um, th one is the, the, the sort of expectation um, amongst a lot of people that, that the price, a pri any price can't go below zero. Um, and actually, for me, there was a real parallel with about eight or nine years ago now when interest rates started to go below zero. Um, and at the time, um, I was managing a fixed income part of the of, of um, CTA portfolio, and obviously was quite focused on this. And I think it was Swiss LIBOR that first went, you know, the future started trading very close to 100, which if you understand how um, interest rate futures are priced, that means the interest rate was about to go negative. And we were having this big debate about whether it was even possible for the, the underlying um, instrument, which is, you know, the actual LIBOR fix to go negative whether it was even possible for the you know for the the futures to to go above a hundred, um, and one of the the nice things about the way we designed our system was um, it was actually quite agnostic about the level of the price. It just treated it as a number. It didn't really have an understanding of what going ab above a hundred meant. So from a sort of operational perspective, everything was fine. It, it was just more of our kind of research concern about whether. Um, you know that this this different interest rate environment was something that really we could rely on our back testing. You know, was was there something special about that the the yields going below zero that meant that we we had to throw away all all of our back tests and potentially refit our models or st stop trading the market entirely? But from an operational perspective, everything actually worked pretty well. Um, and now, of course, negative interest rates in Europe are are fairly common. Um, and uh, you know, Mr. Trump actually would like some in the U.S., so that that's something he'd like to import into his country. Uh, he he thinks they're they're a wonderful thing. Um, but but with oil, the same thing. I mean, the the thought of having a negative oil price seems pretty crazy. Like, how can the price of of a physical product be negative? Um, interest rate is is different, um, particularly something like LIBOR, which of course is just based on a on a survey, um, s still even to this day. Um, and um, one of the, the larger brokers, Interactive Brokers, um, it turned out that their, their system didn't know that the price could go below zero. Um, and in fact, the lowest price it was showing was, was 0.01, I believe. Um, and so uh, one, one uh, retail trader thought, well, this is a great opportunity. I can buy a barrel of oil for a cent. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to buy loads of, of uh, crude oil futures. Um, and, you know, what? nothing can go possibly wrong. Um, and, but what he didn't realize was that the, the price was actually negative. It's just that the system was unable to show him that price. Um, and, um, you know, he ended up with quite a big loss in his account. But of course, because it was down to a, a, an operational failure on, on the part of the broker, um, you know, they, they had to, to make good that loss to him. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's the first thing that kind of jumped out at me is, is, is how you you really can't have any preconceived notions, particularly in these crazy times that, that, that prices can't go below zero or, you know, back in the day that interest rates can't go below zero because sometimes these, these crazy things can happen and you need to make sure that the the operational side of your, your systems and your infrastructure, you know, can cope with these kinds of things. So, for example, if you, you know, in my system, I guess you guys are something similar, it's running fully automated, it does need to cope with a bad data. You know, so if a bad price comes in, you need to have some way of, of automatically spotting that and flagging it up. And I, I my system automatically sends me an email because obviously I'm just running it by myself saying, hey, Rob, it looks like this price is bad. Uh, I'm not gonna gonna deal with that. Um, and um, I, you know, you can imagine a situation in which someone had a system that completely refuted negative prices and refused to believe they existed. 
Um, whereas with, with my system, it flagged up the price and I, I said, oh, okay, yeah, no, that is a really negative price. That's fine. That can go into the system. Everything will just work. So, um, and then there are various other parts of my system that are designed to cope with negative numbers um, because, you know, I have no, ex I had no expectation built into my system that prices could be positive. So that, that was the first kind of really interesting lesson for me from, from this, uh, from this event. I, I don't know whether you guys, you know, whether it affected you guys or, or whether you just sailed through it without any issues. I mean, on our side, we, uh, we didn't even trade the May contract, so we were not affected by it, uh, whatsoever. And we would always, uh, like I'm sure Moritz does on his side, we would always roll, you know, uh, 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 you know, ways before um, you get close to expiry because that is a risky time to trade. And, and I'm even surprised that retail investors like the guy you mentioned, I've seen the, the article as well, you know, we're, we're allowed to trade, uh, you know, futures uh, so close to expiry. Yeah, it's we can talk about crazy. the role, role in a minute, actually, because right, that's the yeah. other point I want to bring up. Yeah, Sure, sure. But but I actually think it opens a. I think what happened opens a, a kind of a broader discussion and well and that's kind of what you alluded to initially where the guy thought oh if I can buy oil at a cent, uh, you know I'll be a gazillionaire because it can only go higher, because we often talk about commodities in the sense that people say oh yeah but I mean it's not going to go be below production price so there's kind of this uh, you know invisible flaw in the price of commodities well. It didn't turn out that well for oil, and I just wonder whether we've opened kind of a, the next chapter where we have to rethink what 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 production price means, and does it even mean anything? Because if we go through a crisis where suddenly there is a massive oversupply of anything, well, then the price can go anywhere. Um, so again, I think it talks positively for for the kind of approach we take because we we don't have a prediction we don't care um don't care i don't mean it in a negative way i say we don't yeah we don't have a prediction about what is right and what is wrong we just follow the price so i think these um surprises we see um goes back to this philosophy of knowing what you don't know and if you if you if you stay true to that then you're never surprised i don't think um I don't think negative prices are all that new. I know they've, you know, they've become more frequent in uh, the more recent years. And Rob has mentioned the negative interest rates, even though one could say negative interest rates have existed before in history. It's just we haven't been around to observe them. Um, power prices in Europe are very regularly, very often negative. Off-peak power prices are, for instance, German power um, pretty much every week now has a negative price at a certain point of the day and it clears substantially negative like you know minus 40 per megawatt hour so there are many segments of the market where negative prices are a reality i think negative prices are a reality in our lives in um in for instance if i want to get rid of my old fridge it's not free of charge you know there's a negative price i need to pay for getting rid of it if i want to get rid of my old car it has a negative price if i don't find a seller because you know I need to drive it to a demolition site and pay for it being demolished. So negative prices are there. And the um, what, what, what's funny about it is that the financial models out there, or many of them at least, are unable to cope with them. I'm sure changes have been made because now the quants are looking at the situation. It's like, hey, we need to cope with those negative prices. But in return space where zero is the ultimate floor right and lock return space 
that stuff just stops working, right? I mean, uh, if you go from minus one to minus two in crude oil price, that is a plus 100% return. You know, it's not negative anymore. So um, it's it's completely backwards. And I think those models have to be adjusted uh, to, uh, to, you know, cope with that. Um, what I did, I, I didn't trade the May contract. Um, I, you know, trade along the WTI futures curve, uh, but I'm not trading every contract because the entire curve is relatively liquid. I may at some point be trading the May contract if that one is looking very prefer uh, preferable to trade from a, you know, curve point of view. But uh, um, uh, this year I didn't because the curve was already in very, very, you know, uh, um, volatile volatile environment anyway I, I was in the in the june contract so i wasn't impacted by that role in may right but i forced my system uh in a in a back test to trade the may contract um and it, it wouldn't have been a problem because you know i i don't look at returns i look at differences in price and and that works in the same way below zero as it does above zero and one of the things that you know i just want to bring up again because it has to do with rolling is the way i do that and i've mentioned that before is i create a continuous contract that is back adjusted for the price difference as of the point of the roll not everybody is doing it that way so what when, when i do this this means i'm keeping my lots essentially constant right and um uh, and the price is whatever the price is some people use a different way of rolling, a, diff, a different back adjustment factor, which is based off the ratio of the contracts at the price at the time of the roll. That doesn't keep their lots constant. It keeps their notional exposure constant. The problem is, if you rolled crude, what was the day? 21st of April or something like that? It's negative, and the next contract is positive. Then you're creating a negative ratio and that negative ratio will impact the entire time series of your back adjusted continuous contract and flip it upside down. So this is exactly when even, you know, a systematic trading process, a systematic rolling process uh, may hit a roadblock. And it's probably not something that you would have thought about when you designed your system or designed your roll strategy. So I can only say, using the differences and not creating those ratios and not creating percentage returns is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because um, I often have debates with people who say, you know, because I do the same thing, I use this difference uh, approach. And people say, you know, it's, it's too simple. It's too crude. Um, it's not sophisticated. <laughs> Uh, the they say about trend following. Exactly well, the same, you know, right? th these are fellow trend followers who consider themselves a cut above, <laughs> and they they say, yeah, you should use the ratio. That's that's the the more you know mathematically correct thing to do. Um, and um, yeah, I, I've just never bothered. It just seemed to me like, I, to be honest, I didn't didn't bother not because uh, of this issue, but because it just seemed like a slightly bit of extra work and a loss of uh, intuitiveness in the system for no benefit really. Um, and the other thing about, um, but if you do do back adjustment. If you go far back enough in time for something like um, US 10-year bonds, say, because they've had so much return from the roll-down, the, the adjusted price does actually go negative. You know, so if you say that... Soybean meal is the, is the, is the first one who, do, who, went, who goes negative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So if you say that the, the price of, of the, the bond now is, I don't know, 120, say, for, for, for argument's sake, 
you know, you go back to like 1980 and the price is minus 50. So at that mm. point, your your system has to cope with negative prices already uh, in the back test. So, um, so yeah, so yeah, as we've both we've been kind of all alluded to. Um, none of us were trading the May contract. Um, and one of the the other things that kind of came out for me is is this whole issue about the fact that essentially, you know, when when we have our back tests and our training strategies, they're agnostic about contracts. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but in my system, you know, most of the code works without knowing. The existence of contracts you know it's it it's trading this thing called the us 10-year bond future that doesn't really exist uh, and, you, and you actually have to implement that with with by you know by holding a, a specific contract um and um you know at some point you have to choose which contract you're going to trade uh, or perhaps you know, as, as moritz alluded to you know which um series of contracts you're going to trade um, and then you, and you have to make a decision about when you move from holding one contract to the next when you you make that role decision um, so um, so like you I was shocked that anyone would hold the front contract <laughs> of, 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 of crude oil um, and um, you know it, I, th- I thought it was kind of interesting because if I if I look across my portfolio of futures actually you know, there's sort of four or five groups they fall into in terms of um, when I when I decide to to roll them, um, and um, you know, I thought it was a, a good opportunity. I did a little Twitter thread on the subject to say to people, look, you know, um, generally speaking, there are there are certain rules you should follow, um, and then there's a little bit of flexibility around that. So if we if we take crude oil as an example, my personal preference, uh, because I've only got the capital to trade a single contract, is I just trade December. Um, and I'm I'm lucky that in crude, December is when you know one of the liquid months, and he, if I can roll from, so in you know where are we now? We're in May, so in about October, November, I w- I'm currently holding December twenty. I'll be able to roll into December twenty one, and it's sufficiently liquid to do that. Uh, and the nice thing about that is because it's um, uh, you know a physical commodity, it does have seasonal effects. And by sticking to December, I, the seasonal effects effectively disappear from the, the price series. Um, so, um, so that that's crude oil. Um, whereas there are, of course, quite a few things where there isn't really any decision to be made. You have to trade the front contract. So, the bonds, the equities, you know, natural gas, um, and um, you know, then there's a little bit of a decision to make with, say, that the bonds. Um, you know, you 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 probably got about a a week to two week period in which you can roll, I would say, and then it's a question of when you know whether you leave it to the last possible day or, or whether you, you you do it early. Um, but th- that's not really going to make a huge amount of difference uh, to what you're doing. Um, and then, um, as we've talked about quite already, you've got the the vol contracts. Um, and again, um, I you know you you'd have to put a gun to my head to make me hold the front vol contracts. Um, because you know that they they are they they remove a lot. They're very volatile, um, and the distribution of returns has got a, a you know um, I mean they're all negative positive skew, but there's a massive positive skew. And if you're generally short, that means you've got a massive negative skew. Um, so I generally like to hold the second or the third month out. Um, and then the other the other kind of contract of interest would be probably the the short term interest rate futures where like crude there's quite a long series you can trade so you know the euro dollars liquid to four maybe five years away um and the the thing here that that was kind of this kind of influenced me is that if you go back a few years to when we we're talking about you know interest rates really low and also very stable um during the long period of zero interest rate policy in the us and elsewhere 
um, the very front uh, euro dollar futures, the volatility on them was just nothing, absolutely nothing. Uh, and you had to go quite a way out on the curve to, to get to the point where the volatility was, was reasonable enough such that you know you didn't have these huge um, leverage positions on. So as so a euro dollar, I have a preference for trading about three years out. Um, because you know much further than that, the volume, the liquidity starts to go down. So that's that's my my kind of uh, my kind of take on that. I'd be be curious to know what you guys do though, because obviously you know there is there is some room for debate in some of those decisions. Yeah, speaking about short-term uh, interest rates, by the way, did you notice that I think it was the FIP on March twenty-one euro dollar that uh, went um, above a hundred for like. A, f- a few seconds at least um, either this week or last week can't remember yeah that, that's much week. closer than I'm trading I mean, I'm out in like 2023 at the moment so sure, sure. yeah I didn't know yeah, that's interesting yeah. yeah we're probably yeah no I mean we're probably a couple of years out I would imagine uh, on those kind of things but of course it does change a little bit um, I guess also in terms of the expectations so maybe maybe that is not a you know it's at least in, in certainly the way I've been brought up in, in trend following is that I mean, you don't have to overthink your roles, right? I mean, you can pretty much set them at certain dates, like, you know, five days into the month before it expires or whatever the number is. And it's usually a pretty good um, measure. Of course, you could also have your system tell you when it in open interest changes, then your system triggers it. You know, the systems can do that. That's not a big problem. But I think with short-term interest rates, I do think we all had to rethink that once uh, a few years back when when uh, yields went so low and and we had to move out further than what was n- the norm uh, at least in the old days for sure. I think the norm in the old days was like nine months out is how a lot of these um, roles were set up, but but that's probably not enough anymore. I would imagine. So, yeah. I I think Rob made a very good point on the seasonality of some of the contracts. It's it's not only in the energies where, for instance, in net gas you have you know winter and summer, but it's also in the grains where there's you know old crop, new crop, and um, if you like you know stick to a certain contract or two contracts, say a year, and you you know they're liquid, then you can kind of like circumvent the seasonalities uh, of that of that market. And I think this is worth looking at. Just leave it like that. There are other contracts such as, for instance, WTI, uh, where you don't really have that seasonality and the curve is liquid. Yeah, December is liquid, but all of the other contracts, at least for my size of trading, they're also liquid enough to trade. Um, and so therefore, for me, what, what I'm doing there is I'm looking at the, the strip and, um, you know, the, the full calendar and uh, uh, depending on whether I'm long or short, I'm looking at the shape of the curve and the roll yields that are implied by the curve, right? And um, and then my system may take one contract or another. This is why I've said next year it may be trading May. It didn't trade May this year, but maybe next year it does, right? Um, you know, right now um, I'm in um, I'm in December already. Yeah, I I rolled from June to December, so there there's some other things that you can do obviously you know when for instance in coming back to crude if you're in the front contract in april so you're in the may contract and you're short that one of course gave you the most bang for the buck it obviously also gave you the most volatility so um you know it's it's uh it's a give and take um 
know, June never went negative, only 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 made it. So uh, I'm not saying that it's impossible to trade those contracts, but like uh, Rob was saying, they you know tend to be more volatile because that's you know where where the action it, it gets into delivery and uh, people need to get out or they get squeezed and it's uh, just more action hanging uh, being in there. Other markets such as, for instance, um, say the Hang Seng, right? The Hang Seng is, it's kind of like, yeah, you have to be in the front and that stuff is rolled kind of like in the last three days prior to last trade. And it's kind of like, that's the window and you're in that window or you're not. It's, you know, you don't want to roll it any other day because that's when the spreads are liquid. Um, and so then you, you just have to, to deal with that and be in the front and roll to the next front because nothing else is liquid. And uh, yeah. Nothing more to add, but I think it is, in, especially in the commodities and in the short-term interest rates, it is a um, a fruitful area for research. So I, I should have said I also follow this approach of sticking to a specific month for the commodities when I can, so corn and so on. Um, I think the other contracts where looking at the roll yields or the risk-adjusted roll yields, which essentially is the carry signal, I guess, um, is interesting, is in the VIX and, and, the, and the V stocks, because you you've probably got about a three to four month range in which you can you can look at um, positioning yourself and particularly at the moment some you know if you look at the the, the curve for the, the the futures curve the VIX it's kind of crazy right I mean it is kind of wiggling up and down so you you can actually have quite different roll yields depending on the month that you're in um, and absolutely the Asian markets um, particularly Korea which I've said before I've traded and I've I've been it's actually Jerry who DM'd me on Twitter and pointed out to me that um, I should be careful because U.S. citizens can't actually trade the Korean futures. Um, so that's a message for the U.S. listeners. But but the Korean bonds and the Korean equities, again, you've really only got one one maybe one day to roll them. So you know you really have to to get your skates on there. Well, maybe with Trump's new friends in that area of the world, maybe they can trade the North Korean futures market soon. Um, you never know. Anyways, we've got a hard stop today in terms of time. Uh, in about. Um, eight, nine minutes, ten minutes maybe. So uh, let's move on. The last one uh, topic you brought up, uh, Rob, was actually a tweet from uh, from our friend Jerry um, about systematic versus discretionary. So in a few kind of, let's make it short this time, um, um, what were the key takeaways you took from that? Yeah, so um, Jerry actually, um, it was a, an, an article in The Economist, um, which is... Uh, one of my favourite publications, I have to say. Uh, although I should point out that annoyingly, it is behind a paywall. <laughs> so, um, but it, but it, it's kind of um, every, you know, journalists like beating up um, the fund management industry with a stick. Um, and um, I, I think what journalists tend to do is they'll they'll look for the weakest victim and then hit them a few times. So, um, obviously, over the last few months, you know, um, active equity managers. Um, have not, you know, shone and uh, active hedge fund managers, long short managers have done very badly. And I think value, I've seen quite a lot of articles saying that value um, in the US, for example, is, is as cheap as it's ever been. I mean, it's just crazy, crazy cheap, like value stocks. So anyone who's doing any kind of long short equity with a, with a value bias will have underperformed even the, will have underperformed the market. Um, so the the economist um, has you know taken a big stick to the, um, the 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 hedge fund management industry in general, um, but when a one kind of bright spark um, that we that we can take from that article um, is that the, the systematic side has done well, and the quote that Jerry has pulled from that article um, is that that uh, on average 
Around a third of hedge fund assets are managed in systematic funds. On average, these have done best, minus 2.1% this year. By contrast, discretionary funds run by humans are at minus 12.7%. So, um, you know, I think in the CTA world, we've we've done a bit better of that. I think I think the indices are profitable. Uh, I mean, all three of us around this table have made money this year. So, um, you know, but um, sometimes you, you have to take the, the credit as a, a relative performance rather than an absolute performance. And, uh, uh, you know, I think... Um, the 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 shift uh, in the industry from discretionary to systematic, which um, you know sometimes is is two steps forward, one step back. I, I do think um, that if this app performance continues, I think we will continue to see a, a shift out of uh, discretionary fund management. Um, I mean, there are areas where discretionary fund management makes sense, um, and indeed we've already talked today about um, discretionary options trading. Um, and um, I think, you know, in more illiquid assets, perhaps in some emerging markets where, you know, you can't really trust the data and you have to use uh, human analysis. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think a third a third of the industry is systematic to me s- still feels too low. You know, I, I think it should be at least 50-50, if not higher. Um, and uh, it, it's it seems weird that given that there's this general trend in society that AI and robots are going to take over everything, um, that, that most fund management is still done by, by, by guys, um, you know, thinking. And uh, as, as the ev- both the evidence and the science suggests that, that um, with, with the exception of, um, you know, a few superstars and in, in, in a few uh, niche parts of the industry, that they're generally going to be outperformed by, by, by systematic uh, decision-making. If... Uh you know, it's a double-edged sword. Maybe if uh, if more money gets systematic, maybe it becomes more difficult for us to make money. You know, maybe the, one of the reasons that we have an edge is that there are still quite a few discretionary managers who come up with you know decisions that may be suboptimal or apparently uh, are suboptimal, and uh, and um, and we take the other side of those trades potentially, right? So if if everybody becomes systematic, maybe my life becomes a bit more difficult uh, in terms of uh, return generation. But I mean, the, the other thing is um, systematic. We've, we've said this before, you know, having a plan and having a system and being able to stick to that system has so many advantages. I mean, you know, um, when things become wild, at least you have that guidelines and, and your system that you can stick with and, and, and follow. And, you know, I, you know, looking, I, I give you the example again with crude. Um, I know we've spoken about that a bit, but, you know, discretionary Moritz, which didn't take any positions, but when I looked at the market at minus 39, right, in super contango across the curve, and this is less than a month ago, this is like three weeks ago, right? You look at this market, discretionary Moritz goes, well, you know, they're producing oil, we have this virus situation, nobody's driving, um, and uh, that market is toast, you know, crude isn't going to come back up. Okay, three weeks later, the May-July spread is in backwardation. It traded in backwardation yesterday. Only a little bit, 10 cents, but this coming out of like minus 11 bucks contango, right? And uh, supply has been apparently reduced dramatically. Um, demand is picking up. Some of those cars are on the road again. And within a matter of three weeks, that market has done essentially a 180, Right. Maybe it's now going to go down again, but had discretionary Moritz taken any positions, I would have I would have killed myself, right? PL wise. So 
it just again and again shows that whatever you think uh, will happen and what factually does happen are two very, very different things. And, uh, you know, I, I, I experience that all the time with myself where, you know, you come up, you read something and you, you form an opinion and then, you know, you don't take a position, but three weeks later you read about it and it's like, oh, well, lucky me, I didn't take that position. I like that hashtag discretionary Moritz. That's a that's yeah. a new one. Um, uh, let me jump straight to a quick question that Brian uh, sent in. Um, and Brian was generally interested in uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about where the we see the strongest trends in our portfolios from a signal point of view. Um, we, we may do that more from time to time. Um, certainly um, from my point of view at the moment, uh, not surprising. I mean, uh, short energies uh, are are still reasonably strong and well, some uh, other commodities like uh, cocoa also in that region in terms of strength and then uh, obviously on the fixed income side but this time on the long side we've, we we do see uh, a couple of the fixed income markets so that's kind of where and then there's a lot of not very uh, convincing signals um, either way so to speak uh, Brian and um, but we may we may comment on that. Let me just quickly, uh, because again, we have a little bit of a deadline today. Um, speaking of positive performance, um, we can quickly run through where we stand for the CTA space industry. Um, this, uh, as of Thursday evening, beta 50 up uh, 0.66 for the month of May, still down 1.29% for the year, but that is the only index that's down for the year. We now have the SockGen CTA index up 82 basis points for the month, up 52 basis points for the year. SockGen trend index having a good month, 1.29% up, 378 for the year up. Uh, SockGen uh, short-term traders index up 47 basis points for May and, and up uh, well, 4.39% for the year. And the bridge alternatives, the flat fee index up 73 basis points in May so far and up 3.52% for the year. So. All in all, um, things are well across the industry at the moment. Um, any final thoughts? Um, let me start with you, Rob. Any final thoughts uh, from you? Yeah, I mean, I pointed out last time that it was going to be my birthday a few days before this podcast, and but my cake doesn't seem to have arrived, so I'm quite disappointed. Oh, it's a virtual uh, You know, Corona, <laughs> we're not allowed to get out. We tried, but we just couldn't. Okay, I you forgive know. you. But there we Exceptional are. Exceptional circumstances. Yeah, no, it's been. A, it's yeah, it was really good. I mean, we had to eat oh, it, of course. It was exactly. really good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, no, 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 no further thoughts from me. Belated happy birthday, anyways. Well, it's upcoming, right? The birthday's upcoming. It's upcoming. No, it's it a has few, been a few days ago. Uh, okay, so happy belated birthday, yeah, Rob. Happy birthday. Um, <laughs> yeah. Any final thoughts? Moritz? No, leave it. Leave it with a happy birthday. Um, I think this has been good. Fantastic. Good stuff. On that note, we're going to wrap up this week's conversation. We hope that you uh, enjoyed it. And as usual, by the way, send us your questions uh, to info at toptradersonplug.com. We'll do our best to um, give you an answer as soon as we receive them. So from Rob, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. 
And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.